Welcome back to the Global Surgery Series on ENT in a Nutshell. This is part two of our episode on the origins of global surgery with Dr. Park and Dr. Alkai. You mentioned earlier in our talk that uh, when you saw the title of this, the 2030 title, this is kind of what in, it helped empower a lot of your thoughts. So tell us how that journey started. Yeah, so let me just touch on the nexus of uh, missions, surgical missions, and the surgery. I think this is an important point. Blake mentioned that most of us have our roots in missions uh, because that's all it was, only thing that was available to us. Uh, and I think intentions are good, but it, it was never, I've not seen the missions model attack surgical systems for a head on. It's really a focus on the individual patients. And I get that because of course, you know, uh, Christian love and charity is, is taking care of the sick and, and the injured. Now I get that, but I think social justice, which really, which is really the, the essence of global health and global surgery. Social justice is really the face of love uh, at a large scale. So I, I'm not sure the missions people have really made that leap or want to make that leap. But having said that, I would say that a lot of the missions organizations have jumped right into the global surgery movement, both feed in. Uh, at, uh, the Smile Train and Op Smile, for instance, uh, come to mind, and they've now embraced global surgery movement. But they're, they're uh, fully in, uh, invested in uh, surgical system strengthening, national surgical planning, all those kinds of things. So there's a shift uh, within the missions field in a good, good way towards global surgery systems level intervention. Uh, so then let me just get to the question you had, which was, um, you know, by putting this name on it. When, and when I read this global surgery 2030, you know, it, it not only did it give it a name, but it, it showed the, the scope and the magnitude of the problem. And it became so obvious to people like me that there's, this is not going to be a technical solution. We're not going to be able to operate our way out of this gap. There's no way we can train enough surgeons quickly enough to meet this gap of 143 million operations. It really was a political solution that needs to be you know, first and then have the investments, large-scale investments uh, to follow. It's really a social change. It's a way we think about uh, healthcare at the highest levels of government. I saw that as attacking uh, the health disparities at the systems level is the only solution. Now, I'll, I'll tell you what the problem I keep running into. I'm a neurosurgeon, you know, you are, you're an uh, ENT. Surgeons typically look at problems from a very technical standpoint, and, and we run into this all the time. I'll give you a, a very good example. If you look at global neurosurgery uh, meetings that people put on, if you look at the program, it almost always focuses on how do we train more surgeons, right? <laughs> how do we get more equipment to people? Uh, how do we get uh, more donors and more donations from industries or things like that? It has a very, um, like a, maybe a missions model plus, and that's not going to work. Um, so I think the surgeons have to recognize this sort of the blinders that we wear and then kind of step away and, and look at it from a public health a standpoint, maybe even a politician. So, and this Global Surgery 2030 allowed that framework to come in because $350 billion, that's, that's not going to be somebody's, you know, a line item budget next year. It's something, it's going to require massive amount of political momentum building, uh, if you will. But that's the right way to go. And that's what Global Surgery really has, has come now from, you know, this missions thing, which is what people perceive it as, 
And we're shifting that, that, that understanding of global surgery to this system level, global intervention that requires massive amounts of investments. And it's not going to be just from you know, training more surgeons. And I think that's beautifully put. Uh, a lot of our listeners will be medical students, residents, maybe even uh, at the beginning or end of their career. Uh, but speaking uh, directly to the medical students and residents, uh, when global surgery comes up to a lot of them, they think, okay, let's go abroad, let's do some work uh, in a low-income country and do that experience. Um, what additional advice would you give to them or what ways could they get involved in the concept of global surgery that you were talking about, Key, um, to help them uh, promote their own global surgery careers? You know, I can tell you that the PGSSC has a program for medical students and, and, and residents to spend a year or two with us. And our focus is on not so much doing direct direct service work, you know, actually going there and uh, working alongside local surgeons or even providing equipment. We intentionally uh, have removed that from things that we include in our work, our strategic plan. We conduct research that are, are tied to uh, policy questions, health systems questions. Things that we want to answer are things that the ministries of health would ask. So how many ENT surgeons do we need in our country? What's the biggest burden within the ENT field? How far do they need to be uh, located? What are the essential uh, equipment needs? Those kinds of questions. So we do research. And when you do research, you don't have to have a medical license to do the research. You don't have to be trained in ENT to, to contribute to the research activities. And then, of course, we take this research and then we advocate to the right people, right? So and that, once again, that doesn't require hire uh, a medical student. We, we've seen medical students do beautiful jobs with advocacy, the incision group, the global group of medical students interested in global surgery. They're amazing. And I would say the global surgery movement, the progress that we've made so far would not have been possible without the um, the efforts of the medical students. So, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. So absolutely hundred percent agree with that. Like what? Well, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> you know, key, I, I have little to add to that because I think what the answer is really getting at is to uh, immerse oneself in the current literature, the current kinds of research that are occurring, whether it be in financial protection, um, whether it be in health system strengthening, whether it be in you know service delivery models, realizing that global surgery really is global and or public health, and uh, that there are a number of avenues for building one's um, familiarity, whether it be reading the Lancet Commission or disease control priorities, um, or finding um, academic uh, institutions that offer um, research or policy fellowships. Um, I think, you know, arguably that is going to uh, get you a foothold into global surgery much more than a short-term mission trip will. Hey, let, let me ask you a, a sort of a, a provocative question here. Please do. How, how do you define global surgery? Are you asking this to your co-guest, Blake? <laughs> Blake, Josh, just the four of us here, and it's sort of an exercise in and how we would explain global surgery to try to define it, yeah. Blake, you started off. Well, this is one of the, uh, I would argue, hardest questions. I mean, there have been more than one op-ed piece on what is global surgery. 
Um, so thanks. Uh, th- thanks for the question, Keith. Well, you're creating your own op-ed as we speak. <laughs> I, I can already tell by the thoughts forming in my brain, give a sort of convoluted answer, but I think it starts with a, a recognition of what the goal is, which is, um, universal access to timely, safe, and affordable surgical care when needed. So global surgery is working for that goal. Now, there are a number of different avenues by which one can um, further the goal of global surgery. That can involve everything from taking a um, national or international policy perspective, uh, whether it be the implementation of national surgical obstetric anesthesia plans um, or working with WHO um, to find um, synergies that allow for policy directives to research to further define the problem and potential solutions, whether that involve uh, you know financial uh, protection mechanisms or quality of care. But I think that what I'm getting at is uh, to return to Key's point, which is that this requires a health systems level intervention. And health systems level interventions require cooperation between the research side and the policy side of global health. And so global surgery is using the tools of research and policy to advance our mission for universal access to safe and affordable, uh, timely anesthesia care when needed. How about that? That's beautiful. It sounds like you wrote that down and then read it. That's, uh, that's spot on. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a somewhat devil's advocate here, but also promote my own perspective. I, you know, am early in my global surgery career, and I haven't had much exposure to systems level management. So I still have the perspective of what it feels like to live and operate within a low income country or a country that is trying to develop sustainability. And I feel that with so many academic and private uh, people wanting to do good and to have the expertise to uh, contribute, if it's organized in a in a systematic way, we can use all of these good intentions to teach, to provide sustainability uh, within uh, an institution and to raise the level of care within an entire country from the bottom up. And I think that if a lot of people are doing that while simultaneously providing system level changes, then we can meet in the middle with an excellent uh, goal, as Blake has has pointed out. So that's my devil's advocate point of view there. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. They complement each other. Now, so I want to hear from Quinton, the medical student perspective. Absolutely. So I'm not sure I can put it as eloquently as those two, but I guess from a personal standpoint, to me, global surgery is sort of just fulfillment of our responsibility as human beings. I think when we took the Hippocratic Oath, that was not just supposed to be within the lines and boundaries of the United States. I think that territories and boundary lines are all arbitrary. And of course, there's sort of the sociopolitical aspect to deal with, but outside of that, um, we're all one globe. and people. So there's no reason why everyone doesn't deserve that um, health equity. And so that's sort of my personal reason for being interested in global surgery. And that's what I think is the purpose of it. And getting back to something you said earlier, uh, Key, about how you kind of struggled when you were in private practice with the idea of leaving um, the stability of it all, something that that makes me think about that I think a lot of novice um, 
global surgeons consider is or are the inherent dangers associated with global surgery um, in terms of the opportunity costs in your own career back home, uh, the dangers that you might face when you're um, overseas, um, and sort of the elephant in the room key, of course, uh, I know you go to North Korea and obviously some places present with more um, dangers than others. And so I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate on, or both of you could elaborate on those um, inherent dangers, personal, financial, sociopolitical, um, that you've dealt with and that exist. Yeah, yeah, I can go first on that. I just want to uh, close the loop on the definition of global uh, surgery. So the World Federation of Neurosurgical Societies, which is all the neurosurgical societies around the world, they come together and as a federation, it's the global organization. We have an official relationship with WHO. They created a global neurosurgery committee uh, that was two years ago. And they asked me to be co-chair of that, which was an honor. First thing we did was to actually say, we had to define global neurosurgery because I asked 10 people, I get 10 different answers, <laughs> right? No, we had the, the, the president you know, the, or the, the top person within the organization say, of course we're global. We go to their meetings, they come to our meetings. It's global neurosurgery, right? No, that's not the, <laughs> this person obviously didn't really get it. So we, we, we set off with a, a definition that we think we, it, it's, it sort of stood the, the, the test of time over the last two, three years. And we came up with a, a global neurosurgery as a practice, a practice a clinical and the public health practice of neurosurgery with the primary purpose of providing timely, affordable, and safe neurosurgical care to, to all, right? So there's that health equity aspect. But we didn't want to say no to the mission, right? Because it's the clinical aspects of it, right? There's, and that, I think it's that plus more, which is the new dimension of practice of neurosurgery, which is that public health aspects, the equity-based public health aspects of it. And that seems to, for us, uh, has been working okay. And then we're trying to parrot this wherever you know we have an opportunity so that we at least all agree on something that we're all saying the same thing instead of 10 different things. I'm not sure we're making progress, but we're trying. <laughs> uh, well, you have to start somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you all have a definition of global ENT or global otolaryngology, but uh, take a look at ours and, you know, it would, wouldn't hurt us if we, we hurt our feelings if you use something similar. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and in regards to that, uh, everything that was brought up today in terms of um, any papers that are published or organizations that will, were mentioned, they will be linked below in the description in case anyone is interested in, in learning more about it. Um, but Blake or Key or Quentin, any last uh, statements? And then we can let our learners and our listeners continue with their day. Oh, I was just going to sort of re-ask that question um, about the inherent dangers. I wouldn't categorize necessarily um, involvement in global surgery as dangerous. I think what you're getting at is there, there are trade-offs. So trade-offs, uh, you mentioned, you know, financially, you know, certainly most folks who are doing global surgery in academic settings do trade um, higher income or in some folks' cases, income at all uh, to do work in the global surgery field, especially given that the landscape of funding and research hasn't um, really uh, developed robustly. Um, but I think we would also argue 
that we don't necessarily miss that additional income per se because of the the satisfaction um, and contentment that comes with working on something that uh, has a has a higher purpose and mission. Um, there's there's a lot of great research about what uh, makes people happy and beyond financial security and the ability to pay your bills. That uh, additional money um, typically doesn't. Uh, do much for you. With regard to acad- academia, global surgery more and more is becoming recognized as a, as a field. Now, uh, you know, you're certainly correct that there are still many places where if you say you want to do global surgery, it's going to be challenging um, to have a, a path put out for you in that department. But I, I think um, at many of uh, institutions that were already uh, had uh, their foot in global health, um, global surgery really is becoming um, more welcomed in, in surgical departments, um, not necessarily from a funding perspective again, um, but as an academic career. I'll let Key speak to uh, the potential dangers of North Korea. I think he would, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but for, for my final uh, uh, parting thoughts here, I would just say that it's it's been an honor to, to be here and speak with you all. Um, I, I think uh, there are a few more satisfying um, careers uh, available than one in global surgery because you're still on the precipice of a burgeoning movement. Um, Your ability to move the needle on alleviating suffering is real, and we welcome all uh, to the the field. Wow, that's great, Blake. So, so, yeah, dangers or, yeah, I'm not sure. I never felt danger. North Korea is as safe as they come, guys. I'll you, you, welcome you to all join me in the next trip over there. You'll see for yourself. It's very safe. <laughs> I never had to like break out of a, you know, gulag or something like that in North Korea. Uh, so, so yeah, that's one. But you know, the financial part, I think that that's real. That you know, and 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 the, you know, there's this. Our world is a funny place, right? It's a place where there's a tax almost. You know, you have to be. You almost have to give up uh, some of the, uh, the the worldly good to do public good. And why is that? You know, I think that it has to do with the incentives uh, structure. Imagine a world where you, if you provide global public good, you're financially rewarded for it. And another way to look at that is, can we make uh, money by doing good? And I think this is a question that, you know, if we can crack that code, that's the holy grail because we shouldn't have to look at providing a public good as an expense, right? Then we make it into something where it becomes profitable and then capitalism and its engine will drive additional innovations for, that provide global public good. I'm not sure it's possible, but I'm going to leave it and leave it at that. <laughs> You're going to leave it with like the most complex question known to man. I, I love it. That's perfect. Um, uh, well, that's a perfect place to end this. Um, I, I really appreciate having the two guests on, both Blake, Al Kyer, and Key Park. You guys were excellent. Your backgrounds are fascinating. And again, thank you, uh, Quentin, as my co-host. And I hope you all enjoyed uh, the very first episode. And, and thank you guys so much. Enjoy the rest of your beautiful Saturday. Uh, just to break the fourth window and have everybody realize it's a Saturday. <laughs> thanks to all of you. Thank you all. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Thanks, Quinn. It was great. All right. Have a great afternoon. This podcast series was created by Cynthia Choya and Josh Wiedemann. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. 
Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com slash global dash surgery dash podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.